Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a chance to gather together. I thank you so much for the gift of your word, and I thank you for the book of Revelation and the way that it um, challenges us and unsettles us, and um, I I think in the way that it makes us uh, seriously um, engage it uh, in order to learn. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to shape how we see the world and to um, just transform our, our hearts and our minds so that we can be transformed people. Uh, be present with us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I saw Alex come in. Alex was going to ask a question about the four blood moons. How many of you have heard of John Hagee's four blood moons? Have you heard some of you? Okay. So um, I, I just wanted to, because uh, I don't know if you know, but September, September 27th is the fourth blood moon. And I just want to kind of uh, just quickly go over this um, and kind of point out that... The, we need to be really aware of what people are telling us and, and discerning about stuff. And you need to be really wary when people start predicting things. Okay? It's just as a rule of thumb. Like if I ever stand up before you and say, within the next two years, Jesus is going to turn Michigan into its own country. It says so in the Bible. I mean, once you start saying that stuff... you. Get really wary of that. And especially if I said, and after worship, you can buy my book on the whole thing, right? <laughs> and now you laugh about that, but Hagee has sold millions of dollars of books. Okay. There, are, there are tons of copies of books. It was like a bestseller. Okay. Well, okay, so here we go. The blood moon. A blood moon is another term for a lunar eclipse. This Sunday is going to be the fourth blood moon in a series. They call them tetrads. And so um, the guy who who started to come up with this is named Mark Biltz. Went to NASA research records and looked for um, four lunar eclipses within basically a two-year period. And the lunar eclipses have to coincide with a Jewish holiday. And he looked at those and and he found six occurrences of these tetrads with the one that we're in right now is the sixth of the tetrads. And the theory is that during these tetrads, these blood moon tetrads, where there's four of them, something, it's God sending a sign to Israel. And so he looks at Joel chapter 2, 31, where it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. The first thing I would say is prophetic language contains poetry. And when it's talking about the sun and the moon being darkened, it's talking about an upheaval in the cosmic realm. And I, I don't know that it's um, saying it's literally going to be dark like that. Um, I think it's using this language to say the whole thing's thrown off. Um, and when the day of the Lord comes, that's like the return of Christ. So however that looks is how it's going to look. It's not going to do you any good if you notice what the moon looks like at that point. Um, but this is language that the prophets use to talk about the eschaton, to talk about the end of all things. Anyway, he looked at that, and, and Biltz actually began predicting that Jesus would return in the fall of 2015. So I, um, 
there you go, I guess. Uh, and then he predicted that the Great Tribulation would happen after that. Um, if you look at these uh, four blood moons, these tetrads, like I said, there are six of these occasions. And the first thing you notice is um, two of those occasions, nothing significant happened. So there's been five of them prior to this. Three of them, they claim, happened during something important for Israel. Two of them did not. That means a full 40% of the tetrads that they found, nothing happened. But they wrote a book. And so the book, then they said, um, if you look at the tetrad that happened in 1493 to 1494, they said, coincided with the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition, which began in 1478 to 1834, which is like 350 years. So what a coincidence um, that that fell in there. And that date didn't happen. Uh, it was in kind of towards the beginning, in the middle of that. The, other, the next one is uh, April 13th, 1949 through 1950 was the, the next tetrad. And they said that tetrad coincided with Israel becoming a nation in 1948. Um, now in a past life, I was a math teacher and a math minor in school. And I noticed that 1948 is not equal to, or, yeah, 1948 is not equal to 1949. It's a year and a half away. The next one is um, April 24th, 1967 through 1968. They said coincide with the Six-Day War that Israel fought in, I believe, 1968. Didn't write that down. So they got one out of three, so that's not bad. Um, so then the question is, okay, um, none of these match up except for one, and the other one's in the middle of this ocean of years. Um, and then what about the other two tetrads? And... What about other historical events? If you were to pick a historic event that would need to be on the map if God was going to use a sign to warn the Jewish people in the last few centuries, what event might you pick? The Holocaust. So why is that not there? Like if God was really warning the Jewish people, what, like six million Jewish people died? It's kind of a big one. Okay, and so um, this is a, a this sort of thing makes me upset because well-meaning people that want to that love God shell over good money to a false prophet, and when Sunday comes and goes and the world doesn't end, these two guys will not stand up and say that they are false prophets. Okay. There you go. And, that, and, and we'll have another book and t-shirts, you know. I, I just, I get upset about that. Um, there's, there's one thing to disagree theologically, and we can do that, and that's fine. Um, but they are taking advantage of people, and um, they just are. Our calling is not to align the stars and figure out a date when Jesus is coming back. What does the New Testament tell us in regards to Jesus coming back? Only the Father knows. And so, what do you need to do? Be ready. Right? It's very simple. Um, it's very simple, except for the part of getting yourself ready. But besides that, you know. Um, and so, uh, anytime people start to predict things, 
Uh, I just want you to, to be aware. And um, also, follow the money. You know, you just follow the money. So there's, there's some people that I'll be... There's, there's people I disagree with. I'm not a Calvinist. I disagree with Calvinists. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with a healthy disagreement. There's other disagreements where I feel like people are, are fleecing the sheep. And, and those kind of irritate me. So um, does that, that make sense? I guess you at least know where I stand on it. <laughs> All right. So there we go. So thanks for the question, Alex. There we go. Okay, so with the seven churches, um, the overall form is uh, that you've got a greeting. Jesus is described. You notice that Jesus is described usually with some of the elements from other parts of Revelation, usually from chapter 1. And then after that, you've got um, so, uh, positive stuff that's going on, then what Christ has against them, and then instruction on what they should do, and then the, anyone with an ear listen, and a promise or reward for those who conquer. Um, what I want us to think about are, are two things. One is the introduction and some of the instructions are directly tied into the city. Like it makes sense in that context, okay? So we'll kind of figure that out. And the second thing is, as we go through this, I want you to think, how does chapter 2 and 3 serve as an introduction for the rest of the book? Like how does this set the themes and and kind of the storyline for the rest of the book? Or another way to say it is, what would these people need to hear from God in this vision? Because okay. I, I think these are, these are key things, because this was, after all, uh, from John to the seven churches in Asia. Uh, and so here we go. Verse 1, it's Ephesus. And you may have noticed, uh, so there's the churches again. You may have noticed in Ephesus, um, or in all, the, all of them, it says, uh, to the angel in the church in Ephesus. Uh, angel, the, the, the word angel... Um, literally is translated as messenger, so it means messenger. So an angel of God is a messenger of God. Um, uh, and, and so there's a, different thoughts as far as what angel actually means because it's, um, oddly enough, not clear. When he says, write to the angel of the church, I don't what exactly does he mean? Okay. So there's a couple different theories that I'll, I'll just share with you. Um, one is that each church had basically a guardian angel. So they had a lampstand, and then they had like a guardian angel. So that was one idea. Or one that's similar to that is that somehow the church had um, an angelic correspondence in the heavenlies where they were worshiping God, that there was some, something to do with the angelic realm connected with that particular church um, and intimately connected with that church. Another idea is that the angel means the pastor or the leader of the church. Um, and you can see why that would be a very important person to write to. Uh, in fact, somebody who Jesus would want to really talk to personally, probably, you know, the pastor. So that's a possibility. Right? Um, and, and then the other possibility is uh, in Jewish worship, there was a prayer leader uh, for the community that represented the community before God in this prayer time and was known as the messenger of the church. And so it's, it's one of the worship leaders. And so when it says angel, it may be talking not about um, an angelic being, but it may be using the word messenger that corresponds with this uh, Hebrew role of, of worship leader. Um, 
I'm not sure what I think on that. I kind of lean towards the last one, but I still am kind of trying to figure that out. I, I think the important thing for us to draw from is that this is, um, this is written to that church, and that angel somehow plays a, a way of making this message known to the church. Okay. Make sense? All right. Did that not bother anyone else, the angel thing? All right. <laughs> All right, so this one's to Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the leading cities in the Roman Empire. There were 250,000 to 500,000 people there. It was a major seaport of the province of Asia. It was home to the Temple of Artemis. Does anybody know what's special about the Temple of Artemis? Yes, I believe she was. Yes, good. So the statues have her like with breasts all over the place. So it's like, except for middle school boys, I guess. Uh, I'm sorry, is the pastor supposed to say that out loud? I don't. But yeah, the fertility part, fertility. But what else? Temple of Artemis. Anybody played Civilization, the computer game? It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay. What effect would this have on your city? It's not like they had the seven wonders of the ancient world and t-shirts, I went to whatever, but, but it, was, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because of um, its architecture and construction and its reputation. So if you lived in Ephesus, well, how would that impact you? Well, there, um, so it kind of was anyway, but there, you'd have the fertility stuff, and Artemis, or Diana, uh, as the Roman name, uh, would be a big deal for you. I want you to think about that. What that would be like to have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in your city and it was a temple to a god that you're not worshiping. How well are you going to fit in with the general populace? And they're not going to look at it like... They used to call Christians atheists because they only worshiped one god. I don't know if you knew that. They used to call them atheists because, they'd worship, because they said, well, you don't believe in the gods. You just believe in one. Um, and so it would be very weird that you wouldn't go worship at the Temple of Artemis, especially because it was such a big deal for your city. All right. Um, they also, there, they had a temple to the goddess Roma for Rome and a uh, temple for the divinized Julius Caesar. So after, Caesar, after Julius Caesar died, he was divinized. He was, um, uh, they considered him a god. The interesting thing about Domitian was he didn't wait till after he died. He said, I'm a god now, and, and worship me. Um, all right, there was a colossal statue to Domitian that was found there. So it gives you the sense of Ephesus is really tied into Rome, okay? Really tied into Rome. We hear about Ephesus in Acts 19, and there was a huge revival there, and many people burned their magic books. Do you remember that in Acts, where people burned their magic books? And that may have struck you as something kind of weird, but <clears throat> you've got to understand the, the mindset of the people then is if you think that um, everything is kind of fatalistic and just happening to you, magic represented a way for you to manipulate the powers that be to kind of get yourself ahead somehow. Um, and so to burn those books means that you've had a very drastic change in your worldview. You understand the world completely differently now. It, and it's hard to emphasize that enough. And for them to burn the magic books, it said they were valued at 50,000 uh, 50, silver coins worth, whatever that money would be. But I mean, if you can imagine if we had 
50,000 silver coins would be more than $50,000 U.S. currency. Okay, so it would be a lot. Um, so this g- tremendous amount. Uh, so this is a revival that was happening there. Also, um, so if a bunch of people become Christian, what's going to happen at the Temple of Artemis? How's business? Not good. Yeah, and so um, in Acts 19, we also hear about a silversmith named Demetrius who got upset. He said, these Christians are taking away business. They're saying she's not even a god. Now, and then he made the connection, if they say she's not a god and she's disgraced, what's going to happen to our city? So you see, it's not just a, a kind of religious thing. It's a political thing and, and a... Um, be a good citizen. Go along with the flow. This is what's good for everybody. It's good for Ephesus. Just go along with this. And so that pressure is there. So um, there was actually, they were, uh, there was a riot that, that started. They were on the verge of getting in trouble with Rome. That's how the guy who was running things, when, they all, when the riot kind of came to him, he said, guys, you haven't brought up formal charges. We can't assemble like this without Rome's permission. We're going to get in trouble. Go home. That's the new revised Andy translation of that, but that's basically what he said. Okay. And so you can see that the, the Christian movement had an impact there. So that's kind of where they began. Christ's description in this is he is described as the one who walks among the lampstands and who holds the seven stars in his hand. And so that shows intimacy with the church. He knows the church and authority. He walks among the seven lampstands. He's the one who has the authority in regards to the lampstand. We're going to file that away for just a little bit. Um, the good thing, what did they do well? Persevered, they worked hard. What else? They didn't tolerate, what's that? It didn't tolerate wickedness? Endured hardships? You can imagine all these things happening, right? Because you're in a place that's not friendly to the faith. And they also tested people who claimed to be apostles. They were in a place surrounded by false gods. And they stayed um, doctrinally orthodox. Okay? So that was good, but what went wrong? And how'd they fall? It wasn't because they worshipped other gods. They lost their first love, yeah. And the, the word that's used there is agape. And so if you've done the Emmaus walk, you know there's four Greek words for love. And agape is the other-centered uh, love. It's the one that's not, you're not looking for an exchange. It's, it's this. Um, so they lost their first love, their, um, uh, their orientation towards God and others in love. And they lost that. Which says you can have orthodoxy exactly right, but... If you're not loving the world for Christ, that's not good enough. In fact, what's their threat? They're going to lose the lampstand. So the one who walks among the lampstands can take away your lampstand. And it's fascinating that in a, in a world that was so, uh, so many different idols and, and whatnot going on, and they were doctrinally right on it, um, because they didn't love God and others like they did at first, they were in, they were in danger of losing everything. So that's an important thing to, uh, to pay attention to. They abandoned their first love. So they were called to repent, which is a theme that comes up time and time again. Um, 
And then they're promised to eat from the tree of life. And you remember the first sermon where we had the four trees up here? And so the tree of life, you can find that again in Revelation 22 too. And so one of the things that happens here too is you'll see that um, there's tie-ins. And so this is pointing ahead towards something. If you, you know, repent so you can eat from the tree of life. Now is this just saying, what does that mean, by the way, that you get to eat from the tree of life? Is God saying, you look like you need a snack? What's it, what's it mean? Eternal life, yeah. So this is, this is a symbolic way of saying you can have eternal life. Now, why would the vision and why, why would Christ through John, why would the choice be made here? Why wouldn't he just say, and you can have eternal life? What's the point of saying, eat from the tree of life? It ties it into this big story, doesn't it? And it ties it into the end of this book. So these connections are made intentionally to point towards things. Okay? All right. with the Spirit is saying, yeah. And it says uh, time and time again, those who have ears listen. Um, and that is, is connected loosely to Isaiah 6. And there's this idea of the prophets speaking and um, sometimes people have the ears to listen and sometimes they don't. And so it's kind of a... And the call, I, I think the concept is if you have the ears to listen, you're going to listen and implement. It's not an abstract thing. But hear and hear and do. All right, Smyrna. Um, along with Ephesus and Pergamum were some of the leading cities in Asia Minor. So this is a big important city in Asia Minor. Christ is described as the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. If you were being persecuted and the one who was dead and came to life was right in you, why would that matter? It give you hope. Yeah. Yeah. The one who has defeated death is the one who is speaking to you. So right now you can see again, Christ's description is tying in to this particular situation. And it's also going to tie in um, to, to the rest of the book. Okay. So um, they were faithful. We find they were faithful. Um, on, on the outside, though, they didn't look like they were doing too well. Why not? What's that? They were cut off financially, yeah. They were, their stewardship campaigns weren't doing well because people um, were suffering financially for their faith. They were being persecuted. And so here we're going to start to get this, this thing that happens where you have the cosmetic appearance and then the deeper reality. Okay? So the cosmetic appearance is we're struggling financially, we're getting beat up, it's hard to be in the spot. Um, but Jesus said, look, you're, I know you're struggling financially, but really you are rich. We've got a cosmetic appearance and then a deeper reality. Um, there's pressure from the Jews that are going on. So uh, again, so the Jewish folks, they, they would be concerned with Christian proselytizing. Um, as the Christian movement broke away from the Jewish movement, there's different implications. One, they, they might have been upset that some of uh, the Jewish folks were following Christ. They also might have been upset about if the Christians cause trouble and then the people think that the Christians are Jews, then who's going to suffer? 
Well, the Jewish people would too. So what might they do? Like, well, no, Aaron, he's not a Jew. He's a Christian. Go get him, right? And take care of him that way. And so you've got, um, as this tension of them separating, then you've got uh, this persecution that's coming from um, the Jewish people as well. So, uh, let's see. It said you, you might be sent to prison and undergo testing. Yes. Get, just, well, that's a great lead-in to what I'm going into right now. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, testing in prison didn't mean that you got to take the ACT. Okay? Testing in prison meant torture. And they would test you to find the truth. How effective do you think that would be? Yeah, it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They uh, um, torture to find the truth. And then uh, it said you'd, for 10 days you'd be in there. Ten, so we have symbolic numbers that pop up in Revelation. 10 is a, a symbolic number of that's going to point towards fullness or completeness. It's going to bring different things to mind. One of the things it's going to bring to mind, what, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law and you hear the number 10, what might come to mind? Ten Commandments. Okay? And so that's the full... It's, God, I've heard that um, kind of the rest of the law could be seen as an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and so you have the ten is this fullness of... No, so you're going to be sent in there for the full amount of time that you're in there. Um, and ten doesn't make it seem like a short time. Like, get ready, this, this may be difficult. Yeah. Um, but they're called to be faithful until death. I don't know about you, but that'd be exciting to get that letter, wouldn't it? Now notice, what does victory look like for these Christians? So remember again, we've got a cosmetic thing and then a deeper reality. Right. Yeah, victory isn't going to be succeeding in this life. It's going to be life in Christ which we would like, I don't know about you, I'll be very honest, I would like it easy. I'm just, I just would, but um, the message here is no. You're going to be tested, it's going to be rough. You need to be faithful unto death. But if you're faithful unto, like that's victory in Jesus. Keep that in mind, that's going to be a theme that comes up. So, um, uh, Dr. Mulholland wrote in his commentary, how relevant this is for our time, this whole thing about being faithful unto death, when more Christians have been martyred in the 20th century than the preceding 19 centuries. Which is kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? More Christians being martyred in the 20th century, in the 1900s, than in the preceding 19 centuries. One of the issues I have with the teaching of the Great Tribulation is um, it's really only Western Europe and the United States that has the luxury of asking the question, when will this stuff happen? We have the luxury of asking, when will the persecution happen? Because we just happen to live in a time and a place where we get a break. Historically, that's not necessarily been the case. Um, and in different locations, it's not been the case. As I've said before, we've in the last... Um, 18 months, we have had Christian churches um, go to extinction in the Middle East, in the birthplace of Christianity. We've had these old faith traditions 
where they've been massacred unto death. And there's no more of those people anymore. And so it seems weird to me to ask, well, when's that persecution going to happen? That's a very nice question for us to answer here. We have the luxury of asking that question. Other people do not. All right. Um, how, is this <laughs> how is this different than the prosperity gospel? So what's the prosperity gospel? You see it and you believe it. Just pray it and it'll come, right? You, give, you, you send money and I'm going to send you, you know, something that I prayed over. Is, is, that what, is that what Jesus is saying here? What is Jesus saying? When, when trial comes, what do you need to do? Be faithful unto death. Again, I think there's a, a... We live in a time and a place where the prosperity gospel makes sense. But um, there's a lot of times in history where it just wouldn't make sense. In a lot of places where it would. And it, it just think of just think about when the plague's going through Europe. Um, they're just trying to live. I mean, that demolished a whole continent. Um, you got to ask, what does faith played out look like in different contexts other than ours? Anyway, um, they're told not to fear and to fe- be faithful unto death. And so you get this, the, the one who's among the lampstand, the one who has died and has risen again, is now saying, don't fear. He's in control. He'll take care of you. Yeah. Even if it gets hard. Um, and then he says, you're promised the crown of life for those who conquer. Which, uh, the crown of life would be good news if you die. And he says, whoever conquered will, will not be harmed by the second death. And so now the second death imagery begins to sneak in. What do you think the second death stuff might mean? And what, what, what do you think the first death might be? What's that? Physical, yeah, we die, yeah. So what might the second death mean? This eternal thing, right? So we've got this eternal thing going on. So now again we're going to get this contrast where there's a, a first death and a second death, and then there's going to be um, later on, uh, I believe, a, a first resurrection. Um, and so you get this, you get this um, sense of there's a cosmetic level of things and then a deeper reality. Okay? And, and you may try to save your life, physical life here in this world at the expense of your eternal life which, by the way, is entirely consistent with what Jesus said, right? For if you love your life in this world, what? You'll lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, gain it for eternal life. He's not saying that I go around hating myself or whatever. It's saying that um, you hold on loosely to this because the thing that's most important is Christ, not this. So at this cosmic le- cosmetic level and this deeper reality level, which is a challenging word for people in this uh, situation. Um, so what happens if you don't conquer? If you conquer, then you're saved from the second death. What happens if you don't conquer? In the lake of fire. Yeah, you get this thing towards the end, right? Where you get this, um, this judgment end that comes in. Next one is Pergamum. 
Pergamum had strong ties to Rome. In fact, they were the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And as the capital, they had the Roman proconsul there, which was there for legal hearings. And the proconsul had the, I I don't speak Latin, but Ius Gladi, which looks like something out of Lord of the Rings, which is called the Law of the Sword, used used to dispense justice. So the proconsul would use the Law of the Sword to dispense justice. In Pergamum, they had um, the temple to the divine Augustus. So again, Augustus Caesar, after his death, was divinized, was made a god. Uh, And then the goddess Roma. So they've got these strong ties to Rome. And they were the first city in the east to be given the privilege of building um, a temple to the goddess Roma. Okay? And so, if you think about it, like they're given the they're given the privilege to worship Rome and Caesar, which may seem like weird. That doesn't sound like a privilege, but this is a this is a way to tie in and, and get favor. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. I don't believe so. I think they, they would have, but some of them, so like Ephesus would have um, uh, the temple to Artemis. But a lot of times what happened too is as these um, locations changed um, government, so to speak, before Rome came in, whatever culture was there had um, a goddess named whatever that they eventually recognized as Artemis or Diana. And so they'd have these temples that would actually be older than the overruling government. At, so sometimes that would be there. So it kind of depended on um, what temple was there and how big a deal it was. Okay. Good. Any other questions? Okay, they, um, they had a lot of economic activity. So the guilds were there. And if you remember the guilds, um, guilds were the security network for its members. They ensured one's livelihood. They provided support during illness and that sort of stuff. And, and, and they helped make sure you had a job. And if you refused to worship the patron deity, that meant you didn't get to be in the guild. If you don't get to be in the guild, you don't get to work. If you don't work, it's tougher to eat. Um, so that, I, I, you know, you just got to think of that economic push and how, what effect that would have on people. All right. Um, Christ's description here is one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we just heard that the proconsul had the law of the sword. Jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Yeah. Um, which would also, I think, represent justice and judgment. So this is, the, the, this is Christ's description for this place. He said, you're living where Satan's throne is. So this is something that this just I just learned in the last little bit. Um, so the Roman proconsul was there, so they had that that the governor's seat in their city because they were the capital of Asia Minor. So the Rome's governor's seat was there. So what does John think of Rome? The devil. This so Rome is is the outward manifestation of the workings of the devil, which is not friendly literature towards Rome. Yeah. So he said, I know you're, you're living where Satan's throne is. And why would that be a big deal? How do people feel about Rome in this place? They, they, they literally worship it. What happens if you don't? Um, and we find out. 
Because what happened in their church? They had a martyr. Someone died for their faith. They said that even when Antipas died, my, faithful, my, my witness and my faithful one. What is Jesus emphasizing about Antipas? His faithfulness unto death. What does victory look like for the Christian? Faithful witness unto death. Even unto, on the surface level, this stuff can happen, this sacrifice. But the deeper reality is. That's a hard word, isn't it? Unless you're the one being persecuted, then it's a hopeful word. Um, the critique that he has, some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel so they would eat from idols. Um, does anybody remember the story of Balaam? The talking donkey, yes. That's the, the kind of fun part of that. So it's in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 to 24. You guys are all probably just reading there this morning for your devotions, right? Numbers. Everyone's favorite book, your memory verse comes from that. Um, so Numbers 22 to 24. Uh, Israel's going around and they're getting close to Moab and, and Balak is the king and he wants Israel cursed so they don't take his land and so he hires this kind of prophet by hire kind of guy to put a curse on them and, and Balaam says I will only do what the Lord says he's not an Israelite he's a, but he's just like I only do what the Lord says because he apparently takes the prophetic thing seriously and they go through this whole series of events where the king tries to get him to curse Israel and every time he takes him to a special place to curse Israel he listens to God and blesses Israel and the king gets increasingly upset and then just leaves okay well at the end oh and then it, of course then there's the part with the talking donkey where Balaam gets off and, and hits his donkey three times and the donkey says why are you hitting me and the thing that's kind of most amazing about that is Balaam answers him. Like, I, I, it, eventually I think I might answer him, but the first part is like picking your jaw off the ground, right? But anyway, he's like, he, just, he just starts having a conversation with the donkey. Just normal thing, all right. Um, so then uh, we get, but we get into Numbers 31, 36. We find out that Balaam apparently had this alternative strategy for bringing down Israel. And the alternative strategy was getting Moab's women to sleep with Israel and bring in idol worship. And so now we start to get this connection that's going to happen between um, uh, sex and idolatry. And so this is a... Um, uh, it's, it, so sometimes when you see sex talked about in here, um, it's, it's going to be pointing towards idolatry. And, and that's not an, an abnormal thing. There were... Um, temple uh, prostitutes and somehow having sex with them was some way to um, bring about blessing or worship the God or whatever. And it, with, uh, with Hosea, the prophet Hosea, you remember what he was told to do? Marry a prostitute because what did she symbolize? Israel. As Israel was doing idolatry, God equated that with an unfaithful bride. And so... You've got this uh, connection between sex and idolatry going on. That just kind of starts there. All right. Balaam and Balak. Let me find my spot here. Um, so then they begin eating meat. Uh, or in in uh, Pergamum, they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, so this is kind of tricky. So they'd have these big, like, citywide celebrations where the government would pay for these oxen to be brought in and sacrificed and 
everybody would eat, and it's just kind of like the big city party, and um, Christians were eating that meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And uh, what Jesus is saying through that is, by doing this, by joining into this, you are um, supporting the structure of idolatry. You're supporting the structure of Rome. Even um, with, uh, they would have meat in the marketplace that was sold that had been sacrificed to idols, and then they would chop up and sell out in the marketplace. And, and he's saying, you know, when you do that, you are um, supporting the idolatry that's going on. So they were called to withdraw from that. So this is tough. It's tough to live in this place. Okay. Um, another critique was some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, who, it's hard to tell exactly what they taught, but it was probably something about saying it's okay for Christians to participate in the worship of other deities. And it says, Repent or I'll make war with you with the sword of my mouth. Uh, for those who conquer, you'll get the hidden manna. Um, hidden manna was a uh, was, uh, eschatological, messianic fulfillment. This is the end of the ages of this promise for him. But think of it this way. You get the hidden manna as opposed to the meat sacrificed to idols. God is offering that um, alternative. And then the white stone is kind of um, unsure what that means. But there was, when you were in a, a Roman city, if you were part of a council, you would, have, you would get a, a white stone in order to vote. If you got a white stone, that meant that your name was on the membership roll for the city and you could vote and, and take part in, as a citizen in that. And so this white stone, um, I, I think, points towards um, being a citizen of the kingdom of God. So, which would, and the reason that makes sense to me is because these people are feeling the pressure of being excluded from being a citizen of this city, right? Because this city is like going uh, great guns for Rome and worshiping them. And, and now instead of like being left out, they're included into God's kingdom. Thyatira. Yes. Yeah. I I think uh, names tended to symbolize power. And so a name given to you by God is is a way of saying that those, I think, those folks aren't having power over you, but that um, you are now intimately belonging to God and that God's giving you that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily saying that, you know, you'll get up to heaven and, and, God, and now you're Edith. You're like, well, but I never was an Edith before. You know, I, um, but I think it's a way of talking about people's power over you and inclusion into God's kingdom. I don't know how names will work, by the way. But, um, Thyatira was known for its trade and industry, had a lot of guilds, had a temple of Apollo there, who's the sun god, and also the son of Zeus. Had the shrine of Sybil... Sambath there, um, which, uh, of course, as we all know, is a class of prophetesses. So we had these prophetesses that had, they were throughout the Roman world, and they were sought for their ability to foretell events and give sage advice. So you had these prophets there, and that was prophetesses there. Um, Christ is described as the Son of God. Now, in a city that has Apollo, who's the son of Zeus, you can see this is a, a contrast. Uh, Christ is also described as having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, and that brightness, I think, in contrast contrast with Apollo being the sun god. Um, Christ says, I know your works. 
So again, we get this, Jesus knowing us. I know your works. And what's the critique? What did Thyatira do wrong? Who did they tolerate? Jezebel. They tolerated Jezebel. You remember Jezebel, right, from, from the book of Kings. Uh, and so, in fact, one of my fi- favorite biblical stories, uh, Jezebel's kind of involved with Elijah and the uh, prophets, on, uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And so Jezebel married King Ahab and uh, led him and Israel into idolatry, worshiping the Baals. And so you get this, um, he doesn't mean that there's literally a woman named Jezebel there, right? He's saying this Old Testament Jezebel is there. Now, um, remember, this was a spot where they had this temple of these prophetesses, right, that were giving the advice and stuff. So you've got, this is again directed to this setting, to this situation. Um, She will be thrown on a bed. And so I think a way, oh, does anyone remember how Jezebel died? Tossed out of a tower, yeah. Yeah, and then what happened? (laughs) He said then the guy who ordered her thrown off went in and had dinner, of course, is what you always do after having someone thrown off a tower. Then he comes back out, and what they find? Nothing. Just her skull, because the dogs, dogs ate her. Okay? And that fulfilled Elisha. The Old Testament's full of some amazing stories. You've got to dig in there. It's like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Um, but she was thrown down, and so you get this, uh, it would be thrown down on her bed. Now, um, if, if idolatry is connected to, uh, to fornication then you're seeing this being thrown down, I, I really think is kind of picturing back to how Jezebel died, but thrown down onto her bed is, is receiving the logical consequences of her behaviors. And I think one of the things that I'll push as we look at Revelation is the judgment that God gives is not some arbitrary out of left field judgment, but rather saying, okay, then you get your way. Here is the consequence of your choice. Because after all, that would be the most terrifying thing ever. If I ever turned back in my sin and said, no, God, I can handle it, and God said, you know what? Fine. Because then I'm in trouble. Apart from the grace of God, I'm in real trouble. And so um, I think that's a way for us to think about judgment that's uh, played out in Romans 1 as well, but we'll get to that later in the book. Um, then it says uh, that the people get what their works deserve. That kind of follows uh, what I just said. That's in verse 23. The, the command is to hold fast to what you have until I come, to remain faithful. Um, don't follow the deep things of Satan, which is unclear, and I'm running short on time or I would go into what that might mean. But um, just know if it's something about Satan, stay away from it. Just going to throw that out there. He <laughs> um, said to those who conquer... I'm going to give authority over the nations. Could everybody turn to Psalm 2? In Psalm 2, verse 9, it says, uh, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. You have, I'll give authority over the nations. There it is, 26 and 27. To rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. So you see Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them like the pieces of a potter's vessel. So I wanted to to point that out. Like this is another, um, Psalm 2 was seen as a messianic prophecy, so this was a way they expected the Messiah to come and rule with a rod of iron. 
And uh, this promise then is uh, Christ is giving to those who conquer. And then he also said, uh, I will give you the morning star. And in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is called the bright morning star. So again, this is pointing ahead. Sardis is known for its tremendous wealth. It also had a huge temple to Artemis, who was apparently very popular then. Um, it, this city had a seemingly impregnable defense. Um, it seemed like you couldn't get through the walls, but there were two times in history where an army came and captured it. And they captured it while the people were asleep. They didn't guard this one part of the wall because they thought nobody could get in. And somebody apparently scaled a cliff and, and snuck in. And then the people woke up to find that somebody let the bad guys in and they were captured. So um, that happened two times in their history. So this is in the history of the city that suddenly things changed uh, in, in the middle of the night. Um, the imperial cult was big here. Rome helped to rebuild the city after they had a terrible earthquake in 17 AD. And so they're very connected to Rome. Christ then is described as the one with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Um, Probably communicating with the seven stars, again, communicating how he's in their midst and knows the truth of how they're living. You may notice that um, the positive part for them was kind of out of place. Um, So it was kind of missing. It wasn't in the front part there. In fact, it was kind of almost a throwaway (laughs) Well, there's still some among you who haven't soiled their clothes. That's like as positive as it could get for Sardis, okay? And so we notice that. So these guys aren't, aren't doing well. The critique is you have the name of being alive, but you're dead. And so again, we have a superficial and a deeper reality. Their reputation, was their reputation good or bad? Good. You have the name of being alive. The reputation is good. The superficial stuff is good. But the spiritual reality is they're dead. Which, with the way the situations were, probably means they went along with the cultural idolatry of the time. And so they were popular enough and had power and wealth and all of that stuff. And so, um, and when Jesus says that they're dead, does he mean that they're currently physically dead? He's talking about the second death again, right? which is scary because that means that they need salvation. You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. Um, Craig Colster, one of the commentaries, wrote, they're the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity, which is an interesting thing for us to consider in the day and age in which we live um, because that's a struggle. How do, we, how do we live in such a way that people, people ought to be offended by the gospel but probably ought not to be offended by us. I'm always afraid when you say, you know, the, the gospel is offensive. That doesn't give you license to be a jerk, though. So you've got to walk that line, right? You've got to, how do you live in a faithful way? But faithful living, which is going to be humble and it's going to be um, servant-oriented, but still uh, dedicated to Christ, is going to be a challenge to people. Um, he says, wake up, strengthen yourself, remember, obey, repent. So they'll wake up if you remember that the city was taken in the middle of the night. So change can come like that. All of a sudden, things are done. And so he says, wake up. It may seem fine. The city seemed impregnable. On the surface, they were safe. But the deeper reality was they weren't. 
Strengthen what is on the point of death. They're on the verge of losing the church. And then he says, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. Again, that goes back to how they were captured. But also it ties into uh, different parts of the New Testament. Jesus talks about coming like a thief. What's the point of Jesus coming like a thief? Does it mean he's going to be dressed in black with one of those uh, ski masks? What's the point? Yeah, you're not sure when or what. It's going to be a surprise. And you need to be ready. Um, If you look at 1 Thessalonians which is right before Second Thessalonians. You're welcome. First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Well, Paul writes in 5, verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of darkness. I've heard people use that verse to say, so we should be able to predict when Jesus is coming back. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus will come back suddenly, people will be surprised. If you live in the dark, you will be surprised. If you live as a child of the light, then what's your reaction to Jesus coming back? Hallelujah. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This place is broken. We need you. See, so again you have this, this uh, contrast going on. These soiled clothes. There's some of you who don't have soiled clothes, and he tells them to put on clean clothes. Um, in the Roman world, your clothes kind of symbolize who you were. So if you were royalty, you wore purple. If you were in the equestrian order, you wore red. If you were in other, you had different colors. So your color would kind of manifest who you were. And so he's saying, you know, so if you have dirty clothes, what's that saying about you? It could be a beggar. Yeah, it's not a good thing. And if this is talking spiritually, then spiritually you're, you're dirty, you're in trouble. And so he says, uh, put on these clean clothes, wear white those who conquer will receive white robes. Philadelphia. Um, it was known as Little Athens for all the temples. It was a powerful city. Um, was the church powerful in Philadelphia? The church was not powerful in Philadelphia. The city had power. The church did not. Christ is described as the Holy One and the True One. And holy and true together it tends to refer to God. And so if you are in a spot where you're suffering, where other people have power over you, it's a good thing to hear that you've got God with you. Um, And then it says he has the key of David that opens the door that no one can shut and shuts what no one can open, which means who's in charge of that situation? Jesus is. He's got the key of David. Now, the key of David, who's David? King David, right? So this is a very Jewish thing, right? And King David is tying into the the prophecy of the one who will sit on David's throne who will rule Israel. So if Jesus has the key of David, who is he? The king, the Messiah, the anointed one, right? He is the one and he's got the power. Now, if you're in a situation where you're getting beat up, do you need to hear about the one who has the power and is going to take care of you? 
Um, and so they're also getting persecution from, uh, from the Jews. And it's, again, the same sort of thing. Uh, the Jewish people uh, turning on them. But Jesus has the key of David. And, and so um, this key of David thing refers to Isaiah 22, verse 22, where Isaiah writes, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Isn't that crazy how he pulls out stuff like just so close to word for word? Um, out of parts of scripture that you don't read every day. I don't know about you, but I haven't been in Isaiah 22 in a while. Uh, but that's actually talking to, that passage is referring to Eliakim, son of Hilkah, and it's dealing with the restoration of Israel, who's battling enemies from within. And so true Israel is being restored. And so what that means is um, the people who are following Christ are, are, are portrayed here as true Israel. And it's like as Paul writes about the, the branch that's been grafted on. Like, it's, it's, not that, um, it's not that Israel or Jewishness disappears, but rather that it's fulfilled in Christ, and that in Christ we have, uh, in the church, we have the people of God. And so then you get this thing about them coming to uh, worship um, before them that comes on later on here. Um, Christ says, I know your works. I know you have little power, but you're faithful. So he has this door open for them, and the door is open, it's, it's, it's entrance into the kingdom, that nobody can keep you out. Again, you're playing off the sense where the church feels entirely powerless. And since the church feels powerless, we're emphasizing the power of Christ to take care of them. And on the surface, they're weak. But the spiritual reality is that they have the one who has the key of David that, that is taking care of them. So again, we've got to play off this, this two levels of things that are going on. Because again, the, the book of Revelation, it's supposed to change how you see things. So that as you look at the world, you'll start to ask yourself, well, what is the surface level thing that I'm seeing and what's the deeper spiritual reality? That's what's uh, happening with these churches. He says, you've kept my word and not denied my name. So again, what's victory for the Christian? It's staying faithful, staying faithful to Christ. He said, again, you've got the synagogue of Satan, so you've got the Jewish pressure. pressure. He said, I'll make them bow before the church's feet. In this, this messianic expectation, but it's in reverse, it's again showing who God's true people are. And he said, you've got an hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. So here's Chris's question. There's an hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth and that uh, Jesus is going to save them from the hour of trial that's coming to test the inhabitants of the earth. It's just sometimes read as, as the great tribulation. And so people who are in favor of the rapture will say, well, people who are in the Philadelphia age that are the, the faithful church, they will be raptured and saved from the hour of trial that's coming. But this is him talking to actual people in the church in Philadelphia saying that I'm going to save you from the trial that's coming for people who dwell, the inhabitants of the earth. The inhabitants of all the earth is, is literally those who dwell upon the earth. And that phrase of those who dwell upon the earth is, is used to describe the citizens of fallen Babylon or used to describe citizens of, of the, the rebellious order of the world. Okay? And so think of it this way. There's a contrast. There's the citizens of the earth, there's the, or the inhabitants of the earth, there's the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so you have these two people groups. And this great 
time of trial is going to come on the people who inhabit the earth. What do you suppose that time of trial will be that will get the people who inhabit the earth? Judgment. This is, this would be, no, this is like the final judgment. This is like, um, Jesus comes back and you get judged. And so the people who are citizens of the kingdom of God, how's this day for, for us? Yay. The, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. For the people who, um, the rebellious, uh, sinful people against God, then this time of trial is not good. And so what he's saying basically is, that I know you're being persecuted, and I know the powers that be are hammering you, but there is a greater power that be that is coming. And stay faithful in me, because you want to be on the right side of that one. Yeah. One. Jesus comes back and judges. Those are different pictures of the same judgment. One of the, so his question is, what about the great white throne judgment? And what, so there's, there'll be different judgments that are, or it seems like different judgments that are described. He's describing different visions. And I think one of the mistakes that's made is, is we read um, Revelation 4 to 22 as if it's a timeline. And he doesn't say anywhere this is a timeline. He says, let me, he's sharing the visions that he saw. And we have to figure out, okay, what are these visions talking about? Um, and, and one of the things is if you look at Revelation 12 and, and the, the dragon chasing the woman, really seems to be referring, be referring to, to Christ being born. Well, where does that fit in the future timeline? And so um, what you'll get, and we'll kind of go over this, is you're going to get different pictures of the same event. And uh, that'll hopefully become clear as we kind of do some of the work to, to look at this stuff. Okay, so if you are... Um, well, let me, let me kind of finish up. I want to... Those who dwell on the earth. Um, in the book of Enoch, that's used... Uh, and so that's an apocryphal book, but that's used to describe inhabitants, the, the rebellious inhabitants of the earth. Um, and also in the book of Revelation, in several spots, um, it's used to describe those who are rebelling against God. And I just I want to make sure that... So this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is referring to a group of people that are in contrast to those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. So that way, when it says the testing that's coming to those who dwell upon the earth, it's speaking to this group of people that have rebelled against God. The pillars um, is those who conquer will be a pillar in the temple of God. The pillar in the temple of God, like nobody thinks that they'll take the human beings and actually transform them into pillars that hold things up. This is imagery. So if you are weak, uh, is a pillar a sign of weak or strength? Strength. And so it's, it's, it's again, this, uh, on the surface, you're getting beat up and you look weak. But God's going to transform that because what matters is that faithfulness. And um, if you're in a place that's known as Little Athens because of all the temples, what would it mean for you to be like a pillar of the temple? Like you're right by the presence of God. 
So it goes from having to fight all of this idolatry and stuff going all around to being right there. Um, Next, Laodicea. Laodicea was rich. They were rich. They rebuilt their own city after a huge earthquake in 60 AD. They didn't have, they, Rome offered financial help. They turned it down. They said, we can do it ourselves. They were known for banking their medical school, which made that famous eye salve. And they were known for production of fine wool that made a luxurious black garments. And so they are, are, are told uh, one of the strongest rebukes where he says, oh, but you are naked and blind and all of that stuff. You're wretched. You say, I am, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. So here they are. They said, we can rebuild this whole thing all by ourselves. They're proud of what we can do. They say, on the surface, it looks like they're doing awesome. They can take care of things by themselves. He says, but in reality, you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Just tell us what you think, Jesus. And that gets right at kind of what's going on with them. On the surface, it looks very positive. So this Laodicean church had really bought into um, the culture around them. And so, let's see, there's nothing positive to say about Laodicea. You'll notice that's a blank, which is rough. Um, He gets right into the critique of you're neither cold nor hot, I'm about to vomit you out. Uh, Sometimes, I I want to offer a correction here. Sometimes people will say, that means if you're hot in faith, you love Jesus very much, or if you're cold in faith, you're like totally turned away from him. He'd rather have one of those things than you being lukewarm. And I would argue that God doesn't want you cold in faith at all. Um, and so that's, that's not actually what's going on there. Um, in Laodicea, they, didn't, they weren't able to have their own drinking water because it wasn't good there. They had to pipe up spring water from the valley. And so for water for other uses besides drinking, they would bring in water from Heriopolis, and that water was, it was hot mineral water in that city. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Not only was it lukewarm, but since it was this high mineral contact water, if you drank it, you would puke. Okay? And so they've got this, like, water they use to wash stuff that's like lukewarm puke water, was what it was called there. And, uh, and so when Jesus says, you're neither hot, like the nice springs, or like cool, refreshing water for me to drink, you're not either that, you're lukewarm, and I want to spit you out. And the lukewarm, I think, would talk about them compromising their faith. Hey, we can just go along with what, with what the rest of the city and the culture are doing. And because of that, um, Jesus vomiting you out is not a good thing for the church. Some images don't lose their power over 2,000 years. Okay? And so that's one of the things that's, that's going on there, that, that critique. It's a struggle for us today, isn't it? And I think that, uh, to be honest with you, I think the more material resources you have, the greater your temptation to um, compromise with the world. And, and I'll say this for myself. I, I know that that's a hard thing. For me. But you, guys, you all experience it when you go to Haiti, right? Because when people come back from Haiti, they're like, yeah, but they really, they love, I mean, you, you talk about, there's, there's a different thing going on there. What is it? And there's something about wealth and stuff that traps our hearts like nothing else. And then once you have the wealth and stuff, if someone threatens to take it away, 
quickly you find out what your real idols are. He says, uh, he says what you need is you need, um, you need gold refined by fire. So they were rich, and he's saying, no, you're not rich at all. What you need is gold, like the treasure in heaven gold, refined by fire, fire judgment and persecution. You need to be faithful even when it hurts and have that kind of wealth. He said you need to buy um, eye salve because you're blind. So this is like poking them where it hurts, right? Like, no, we got the best eye salve in the world. Not really. You guys are all running around blind. And think, what would it be to see the world if you had the eye salve of Jesus? What would it be to see the world differently that way? And then he says, uh, and you need fine garments because you're naked. Again, clothing was a pretty big deal for them. They had that industry. And clothing in the other churches has already represented salvation. So he, he goes through and he offers these critiques. And then you get the picture of Christ at the door knocking. Um, and and the, the fact of the matter is, it's often safer not to open the door and to keep with the status quo. Um, but if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. Because what would it mean for the people in Laodicea to let Christ in? Would they be able to just participate in whatever they want to anymore? Life will change, yeah. And, and we, so here's the, the challenge for all of us, for me too, and, and I wrestle with this, is what does it mean for us to be citizens of the kingdom of God living in the United States of America in 2015? Because for us, it's really obvious to look 2,000 years in a different culture and to say, well, you dopes, you had a temple to a God in your place, right? And it's, it's easy for us to, to point out other people's idols. One of the things I've noticed is it's harder sometimes to find my own idols because it's the world that we live in, and we're so used to it, it's so normal. For them, it was normal too. And these letters would have been a shocker for some of the people. And one of the things that, that you should get is the more faithful that you are, the more you rub against the grain of the world. And it costs something, which is hard because I don't know about you, but I just would like it easy. And I have it easy, but I'd like it easier. And that's where idolatry gets us. What are some of our idols, by the way? What do you think? Money? What else? Possession, status, children, power, recreation. Football, right? And I'm a football fan. We, I mean, but if you're from like Mars, like so you get 78,000 people here to get together and scream together, this sounds like worship. Security. That's a big one, right? Safety. We want to be safe. That's the internet. Yeah. The internet's changing the way that our brains work. Cell phone. So there's those things that grab our hearts, and some of them are kind of smaller, like personal idols, and some of them are bigger cultural idols. Um, with football, and this is one of the things I wrestle with with football, and then I'll kind of close, but um, studies continue to come out that um, NFL players who die early and have their brains tested um, have brain damage from playing the game. And I really I wrestle with that of when do I stop giving my attention to something that is literally killing people? And I understand it's a game, and I, I, I like it as much as the next person. 
But the reality is, um, people are dying for our entertainment, and it's uh, millions upon millions of dollar industry. Um, and I, I wrestle with that. I, I don't know the answer, but I, I just think that you probably ought to too, um, because we have these uh, we have these things that grab our hearts. One of the things that really bugs me is um, if if the Spartans lose. I'm grumpy. It's a game. Why does that happen? And that really, it, really, it honestly bugs me. You can, you can talk to Anne. Like we've talked about, it bothers me that something has that control over me. I can't sit still during games. I have trouble. And, and so it bothers me that things have that control over me because I, I think that... Um, I have allegiance to one Lord, and, and I need to guard my heart. And so as, as we get into this next set of things, I ask you to consider for yourself, what are those things that grab a hold of your heart, and should they be doing so? And it's a, it's a tough question, and it's an in-your-face question. Um, but Christ asks it of us out of love, because he doesn't want us to experience a second death, but rather eternal life. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Almighty God, we pray uh, that you would um, just send us out now and, and uh, with your blessing. And God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways that, um, the ways that we are called to compromise. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to you. Give us strength and courage uh, to conquer in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.